Yes, six years ago we were meeting in a school, and uh, every week before the worship service started, Chris and I were already dripping with sweat from moving chairs and setting up speakers and getting everything together. We had uh, a team of, uh, I think, five or six adults and then five or six ten-year-old boys. It was kind of our setup team, so those were good days. Um, If you have a Bible, you can open up your Bible to Proverbs chapter 16. Uh, It's page 539 in the black Bibles that are under the chairs. If you want to grab one of those and follow along, Proverbs chapter 16. We'll be starting off in Proverbs 16.6. And uh, what we're doing is we're continuing our series through Proverbs called Grow Up. And the idea of grow up is that we all need to grow in wisdom. That there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And so we have to have a posture of, of listeners and learners. If we do things on our own, we're going to kind of get ourselves into trouble And we need to be restored by God. We need to relearn from God how we are to live. And he gives us direction. And that's really the idea of biblical wisdom. Uh, Even the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word for law, Torah, really means direction. It means instruction. He's going to show us where to go. And so the vision that we've kind of tried to hold on to with the image of the tree is that we would be like trees planted by the water, that we would have deep roots that go down into God's word, that we would trust in him, that we would grow in him, and we would be fruitful, we would be strong, we would have a life of significance, of of weightiness. And so really that's the vision of growing up in biblical wisdom, learning from God's word, being led by his Holy Spirit. What we've done is is then tried to break it up into topics, and usually as we come to the kind of back-to-school time of year, we try to review our core values as a church, kind of who we are our mission, our vision. And so over the next three weeks, what I'm going to do is I'm going to review our mission statement as a church, and I'm going to do that from Proverbs. Uh, for When you've been reviewing mission statement for six years, you start to look for creative ways to do that. So I just thought we'd, we'd continue our series in Proverbs and show how this is not something we just grab out of Romans or we only grab out of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, but our mission statement even can be found in the book of Proverbs. The first, uh, the first line of our mission statement is that it's our goal to trust in God's grace. So our mission statement kind of follows our name, Grace Bible Church, right? So we want to trust in God's grace. We want to submit to the Bible in community, and we want to be the church. We want to be Jesus' hands and feet in the world and in, in ministry. We want to be the church. So today we're going to talk about being, uh, we're going to talk about trusting in God's grace. So grace from the book of Proverbs, um, it's the first step to growing up. It's the first step to biblical wisdom. And so if you'll read from me, I'll read, uh, or read with me, I'll read from Proverbs 16.6. Proverbs 16.6 says, by steadfast love, and I'm going to pause and say that's literally in the Hebrew, that's the word chesed. I shared that with you a few weeks ago, which is basically the Old Testament word for grace. In the New Testament, we have the word charis, which means grace, and we have the word agape, which means unconditional love. Both of those words in the New Testament are kind of carried in the weight of this word steadfast love in the Old Testament, chesed. It's that word I I joked about, right? If you're on the front row, you can feel that word when I say it, chesed. It's one of those coughing, uh, guttural words. So, by steadfast love, or God's grace, and faithfulness, iniquity, which means sin, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Let me pray for us, and we'll ask God to teach us what this means to help us to to, uh, tap our roots into his grace. 
God, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that you love us and you, you prove that to us through Jesus. Um, God, you know that we have many distractions, uh, many struggles uh, that might keep us off of the road of, of maturity and growing in biblical wisdom. And God, I just pray that you would, um, that your spirit would lead us, that you would take over, that you'd help us to hear from you this morning. Um, we thank you that you haven't left us without instruction, without direction, but you've given us your directions. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would allow us to learn and to sit in a posture of, of listening to you. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was uh, just first starting to think about this, I was uh, thinking about the image that we have in the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have been locked out of Eden. We all live in that same kind of place that Adam and Eve began there at the end of Genesis 3. They were in paradise. Everything was perfect. Everything was good in the way it was supposed to be, but they chose to be their own gods. They turned away from depending on God's grace, and then, then they were locked out. The Bible says there was this, this cherubim, this, this uh, angel with the flaming sword guarding them, locking them out of paradise. I joked about earlier with the, the gift I gave to Darla, I have this old door that we use. We jokingly called it the door of salvation because it had been used as a prop at another church a, a while back. And so this is just an old door I've hung on to. And, and I want you to think of the image of a door, right? That that we are all on the outside of that door to paradise. We don't live in paradise. We, we get to look in the window sometimes when you see a beautiful sunset, uh, when you hold a baby, when you eat some really good guacamole, you know, whatever it may be. We, we get those little windows into Eden, those little tastes of the way things are supposed to be. Those moments when you hold someone's hand that you love, when you, when you see something beautiful. You, you're like, okay, that, that's kind of what it's supposed to be like, this this time of Eden and perfection. But, but we live locked out of that. We live in a place of, of sin, right? People sin against us. We sin against other people. Broken relationships, sickness, pain, and death. And, and so we live locked out of that perfect presence and relationship with God. And, and so as I was thinking about this concept of being locked out, I was remembering an image from junior high school. Uh, how many of you had a locker when you were in school growing up? Anybody have a locker, right? You have a locker? Very frustrating to be locked out of your locker, right? It might get jammed, or what would happen sometimes, you might have a lock and you'd forget the key, you forget the combination. What would happen in my junior high is just randomly, some dude would just put his lock on somebody else's locker. That ever happened when y'all were in school? And so it was this big, big deal, and, you know, and the kid would complain, and the teacher thought he was just trying to get out of you know, get out of going to class, and finally she'd realize he was telling the truth, and then they'd have to march down and, and get the janitor who had these, these awesome tools. It was this giant bolt cutter. Have y'all seen those? Right? It was just this huge bolt cutter. So the janitor would march down there, and he would, he would cut the lock off, right? I mean, us junior high boys, we, we practiced trying to break things and cut things all the time, but we could never cut a lock, right? We, we were never that good, but he had this awesome tool, this incredible tool, the bolt cutter, so he comes from the outside, he comes in and he, he restores that ability for whoever's locker that is to, to be back there, right? To be, to be back once again in the presence of their beloved textbooks or to be back again in the, the presence of their, their trapper keeper or their notebooks, right? There's, there's restored relationship now when the locker is, is open. So I want you to think about that image that, that okay, we're locked out of paradise and, and God comes in with this bolt cutter. We call him Jesus, and he destroys sin and death. He destroys that lock 
that is keeping us away from God, that has locked us out of paradise. Because Jesus has died in our place, our sins have been put on him. He's absorbed the wrath of God and he gives us his perfect righteousness. And so now that door is opened. We're no longer locked out, but now we are welcomed in. So he says, come on in, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Jesus said again and again when he was here on earth. The the kingdom is at hand. Come in the door. He's opening the door for us. And that is the concept of grace. Grace is that God would take away that problem, that separation that we have from him. He would restore us. He would save us. He would forgive us. So the first thing I want us to kind of think about again is just picking apart these words in Proverbs 16.6. We've talked before that in, in Proverbs, the poetry is parallelism. And so what that means is instead of rhyming or instead of the using the same letter, they rhyme ideas, okay? So they don't rhyme sounds, they rhyme ideas. So they give you an idea and then they give you the idea in a different way. And that's how poetry works in Hebrew, which makes it tran- translatable, right? Which is, which is awesome for us who are, don't speak Hebrew, because now we can get the sense of the poetry no matter what language it's in. So it gives you an idea, and then it gives you the idea stated in another way. And Proverbs 16.6 6 does this. First of all, it says in the first half, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. So the first half is by that steadfast love, which I defined earlier, it's God's grace. By God's gracious, steadfast love to us, our, his undeserved favor towards us, iniquity, which means sin, is atoned for. Now, atonement means, means there's this substitution made. And so in the Old Testament environment, they would have understood that as this animal, right, that died in their place. So the sacrificial system just drilled it into their head again and again. We're sinners, and we need a sacrifice. We're sinners, we need a sacrifice. We need this substitute to take our place, to redeem us, to take care of our sin so that we can be restored into fellowship with God. And that's what the sacrificial system was doing. It was just beating it into their head again and again and again. We're sinners that need a sacrifice. God's gracious. He makes the sacrifice. He opens the door. He makes a way for us back into God's presence. That's what the tabernacle was all about. And then the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. He's the one that actually is the substitute to restore our fellowship with God. He makes propitiation. That's the New Testament word for atonement. He he substitutes for us. He takes away our sin. And so all of this is packed into this one little verse, 16.6. And then it restates it in the the proverbial or in the Hebrew poetical way. It says it in another way, right? The second half of 16.6 says this. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. And so that's that kind of wisdom way of stating it, right? We've seen again and again that it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom, that we have to respect God more than we respect anything else. And so just to translate this into my own life, you know, one of the things I struggle with is I struggle with caring what people think, right? Makes me pretty good sometimes caring for people because because I care what people think. So I'm good at at helping people. I'm good at making people feel loved and cared for. And that's a blessing in ministry as a pastor. I'm able to counsel people well with that. But sometimes if if I'm not listening to God's word, if I'm not being led by the Holy Spirit, sometimes I care too much about what people think. Sometimes I actually fear people instead of fearing God. And so sometimes people become too big and God becomes too small. And what the Hebrew wisdom tells us again and again is that we should fear God more than anything else. So let me translate it into your life. What what might that look like in your life? You might fear being alone more than you fear God. 
and you'll break commandments, you'll do anything to not be alone, but you don't really fear God. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. It's, it's by the fear of the Lord that you actually turn away from evil. When you get that relationship right, when you see God as ultimate, then that puts everything else in perspective. Maybe it's a money issue for you, right? Maybe not having money in the bank is the worst thing possible. Maybe that's what you fear most. Maybe that's the thing that wakes you up in a cold sweat at night. Maybe you fear being disrespected. Whatever it may be in your life, you have to, you have to put that in proper order before God, and you have to fear God more than you fear anything else. And so it's, it's these kind of two sides of the same coin, really. It's this awe and respect for how good and how great and how big God is. He's bigger than anything else that we think might provide for us. So we fear him more than we fear these other false gods in our life. And that's stated in the first part of, of verse 6 as that's, that's God's grace. That's his steadfast love. God is gracious. He's going to love you. Money's not going to love you. H- having a friend is, is not going to fix your problems. Pleasing people is not going to fix your problems. Having respect is not going to fix your problems. Those are good gifts from God, but they're not ultimate. They're not God. It's, it's God alone that shows that steadfast love to us. He's the one that, that atones for our sin. He's the one that opens the door back into Eden. And so the first thing I want us to think about is how this, this gets us started on the road of following God. That, that we need grace for starting on the road. And I think this is the most common way that we're taught about God's grace in churches today. In a lot of churches, they would teach that um, to become a follower of Christ, you need to recognize that he's forgiven your sins. You've, you've probably heard that before, right? You need to trust in his grace, in his forgiveness. That's how you open the door. That's how you go through the door. That's how you start on the road. That's how you begin the journey of following Christ. And so I would agree, yes, that's, that's where you start. For some of you, you're still thinking that you can do it on your own. You're still thinking that, that you can handle the door yourself. You're still trying different combinations on the lock, to use the, the locker analogy again. You're still going, okay, well, maybe this number will work. Well, maybe this number will work. Well, maybe more money will do it. Maybe if I just am more disciplined, that'll take care of things in my life. Maybe if I just eat the right foods, everything will be okay. Maybe if I have enough money in the bank, everything will be okay. Maybe if I have a better job, that would fix things. And, and you're just trying one combination after another. And God's Word humbles us and says, you know what, it's my grace that is going to bring you and restore you back to Eden, back to paradise. And when we walk in that door, it doesn't, doesn't mean we're never sick anymore. It doesn't mean everything goes away, but we begin this relationship of him. We're restored spiritually to him. We're forgiven. We're now living in his presence, living in dependence on him, trusting in him. And we're on the road to that future home. Jesus says in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Our our real home then is in heaven, in his presence, where everything is made right. So we begin the relationship now. We start by grace, depending on him, trusting that he's good, trusting that his steadfast love is going to care for us no matter what, looking forward to the future when all things will be made right. I, I was thinking about this sign I used to see when I was in college. There's this place called Double Dave's Pizza. Y'all ever heard of Double Dave's Pizza? Down at College Station, they have one, and they would they would kind of play this little joke on their open and close signs. Maybe you've seen these on a different business, but it would say, sorry, we're open. They would reverse it, right? Because normally it would say, you know, come on in, we're open. Or sorry, we're closed. See, here's the other one. Come in, we're closed. And, and they, would, they would reverse it. And so you'd see the sign and your mind, you know, it'd kind of be confused. You'd be like, oh, wait, they're open. No, they're closed. Wait, what's going on? And you'd be all confused and not really know what's happening. 
And I think for a lot of us, we're confused by this. We, we don't fully understand God's grace. We don't fully understand our sin and, and the relationship that they have. So when we look at God, we're thinking, okay, wait, is it open or is it closed? Is the door inviting me in or is the door shutting me out? And so I just want to clarify again for you that the historic Christian teaching is that we're sinners and that we've shut ourselves out of the door. We close the door ourselves. We put the lock on there ourselves. And that lock is our sin. We are separated from God because of what we've done, because we've rebelled from Him, because we've said, I don't want to do life with you. And that's what happened in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. They said, no, we're not going to trust God. We're going we're to trust the serpent instead. And then they were cast out of Eden. And that's what continues to happen in our own life. We, can, we all continue to do that every day. And then God comes along and he says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restore you. I'm going to forgive you. And I'm going to restore you to relationship with me through the death and resurrection of my son, Jesus. So Jesus dies for our sins. Our sins are put on him. He dies in our place and he gives us his perfect righteousness. If you believe that, if you trust in that, you, you can have fellowship with God. You can be free of the power that sin has over you. And so some of you, I, I think some of you need to, need to start by going through the door. Some of you who haven't even gone through the door, you, you still think that your relationship with God is based on how well you're doing today. You, you still think how nice you were today or how disciplined you were today. At the end of the day, you say, I, I was a pretty good person today. God must like me. You're, you're, still, you're still gauging your relationship with God based on your performance. And that doesn't give glory to Jesus and his grace. That gives glory to you and your performance. And so what we, always, what we have to continue to do is to repent of our own works and to trust in Jesus and his grace, to the grace that he gives us. See, in Proverbs, it doesn't say that we atone for sin by being good folks. It says it's by God's grace, by steadfast love, by his faithfulness. It's by fearing God. It's by trusting God more than ourselves, not fearing the other things in our life, but fearing God ultimately. Some of you need to make that first step. A lot of times we hear this described as the sinner's prayer. Have you ever heard that phrase before, the sinner's prayer? And let me just define this for you. Basically what it is, is it's coming to the end of your rope. I mean, the sinner's prayer is saying, I know I'm a sinner. There's something wrong with me, and I trust in what Jesus has done for me. I trust that Jesus is good, and he gave himself to save me. I would invite you to pray that prayer right now. You don't even have to close your eyes and bow your head. You, you could pray it right now. You could tell God right now, I recognize that I can't do it on my own, that I'm locked out of Eden and that I need you. God, I need you. If, if you're to that point, if you're recognizing his grace to you, that you can't work yourself in the door, that you can't try enough combinations to, to, to break in, but that you need him to open the door for you. You need him to cut the lock for you. If, if you're recognizing that for the first time, please, please tell me. I'd love to hear about it after the service. If you had a friend that invited you to, today, talk to them about it. But it's important to celebrate that first step, the, the grace for starting on the journey with Jesus. Beginning to follow Jesus means recognizing that you can't get yourself there on your own, but you need God and his grace. That's how you start. That's how you start on the journey of the Christian life. The, the next thing I want us to think about is our, the need for grace to grow. So if you come into the family by God's grace, 
one of the things that we quickly forget is that we still need God's grace to grow. You, you still grow as a child by God's grace. Uh, flip over to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3. I'll go ahead and read 3 and 4. Okay, I'll read 3, 4, and 5. You convince me. Okay. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. So again, that steadfast love word, don't let it forsake you. And this is how. Bind them around your neck. Okay, so we need to be careful because poetic language here, we may think steadfast love is this thing that just wants to run away, right? It doesn't really want to care for you. Well, that's, that kind of goes against the definition of steadfast love. So when it means don't let it forsake you, what he's, he's saying, he's defining it in the next phrase. Bind it around your neck. It means cling to God's steadfast love desperately. That's how you're going to grow in your life. This is instruction to sons. This is, son, this is how you're going to grow in wisdom. Cling to God's steadfast love, to his grace. Depend on it, and you will grow. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Let it be your internal motivator. Write it on your heart. It says in verse 4, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And then verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And of course, that's a famous one we looked, about, looked at earlier this summer. But it's this idea that as you trust more in him than you do your own wisdom, you're growing in his grace. You're growing in his grace. The way you grow in the Christian life is by God's grace. So often we think we enter the Christian life by grace, and then we grow by being disciplined and doing our thing, right? How many of you, 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 tend, you tend to think that way, right? That, that, okay, I can enter by God's grace, but he doesn't like me today because I didn't read my Bible. Well, no, if, if he loves you because of Jesus, and you are a sinner, and it says Christ died for us while we were yet sinners in Romans, if, if he loves you because of Jesus and not because of your sin, he loves you because of Jesus, then tomorrow he still loves you because of Jesus. We're, we're sinners that are loved by God's grace. Now, as we believe that, as we bind it around our necks, as we write it on our hearts, it will become more and more our internal motivation. It will begin to change us. We will sin less. I really think that will happen. That doesn't mean you might have one day where you sinned more than you did the day before. It's not like this perfect graph, right, where you sin, you know, one time less today and one time less the next day, and it, and it just goes up perfectly. But there will be this growth in your life. There will be this transformation. You will begin to love God more as you trust how good he is and that he loved you first. But again, it all, it's all motivated by his grace. You're binding his, his steadfast love, his grace around your heart. You're clinging to it. You're holding on to it. You're writing it on the tablet of your, your heart. And then there's this dynamic that we go through. There's this process that we go through of confession of our sin and resting in his grace, right? And that, that's why we make that a part of our worship service. We recognize I'm a sinner, but you know what? God loves me. God loves me more than I deserve. And I have an illustration that I've, I've found to be really helpful in, in this whole growth concept. If you flip over to Proverbs 28, I'll explain this illustration here in a second. Proverbs 28, 13 is one we've come back to several times, and it's the idea of confession. So instead of hiding your sin, 
which is kind of, uh, sadly, what a lot of Christians do, right? We we try to fake it and, and look holy on Sunday, but hide our sin. Instead of that, we should be living in community and saying, you know what, I'm struggling. Can you pray for me? And, and more and more trusting in God's grace. Now, again, that doesn't mean I'm saying, you know, sin all the more so that grace may abound. Paul says, may it never be. No, don't, don't go sin more so that you can trust more in his grace. But don't fake it either. Don't, don't hide it either. It says in Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And so when we talk about living in community, this is what we're talking about. Living in community means you, you have a friend and you say, friend, I'm struggling. Can you, can you pray for me? And you confess your sin to someone and you pray for them and you help them. And it's this ongoing process of growing in God's grace. This cross chart's really helpful to me. Um, hopefully it'll be helpful to you. This comes out of the book, uh, The Gospel-Centered Life. Uh, if you want to order that, it's The Gospel-Centered Life by Thune and Walker. And what it shows is at the point of conversion here, there's this uh, two different arrows. One's going down and one's going up. The one going up is at conversion, you begin on this journey of growing in your awareness of God's holiness, right? More and more as you grow as a believer to follow, to follow Christ means to become more and more aware that God is God, that he's awesome, that he's holy, he's perfect. But also simultaneously, it says there's a growing awareness of my own flesh and sinfulness. See this in the Apostle Paul, you know, we can date his letters and we can kind of see him stating more and more severely as he gets older, I'm the, the worst of sinners, I'm the chief of sinners. He kind of goes on and on talking about how he realizes what a sinner he is. And we're thinking, man, you're getting stoned for the gospel and you're just enduring all these things. I'm, I'm way more of a sinner than you are, but he has this growing awareness of his sin. And so maturity in the Christian life is to grow in your awareness of how great and awesome God is, to grow in your awareness of how sinful you are, but you don't stay here, right? There's this thing here that, that gets bigger and bigger. And the thing that gets bigger and bigger, the thing that bridges the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness is God's grace. And it's symbolized here by the cross. God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the cross is the ultimate uh, pivot point center of God's grace revealed to us, that Jesus died for us. And we think in the beginning, well, I'm kind of a sinner. I need a little bit of God's grace. So now I'm, now I'm a Christian and I only needed, you know, five cents of God's grace. And then a year later you sin again and you're like, what is going on? I can't believe this. God's grace should, should abound. His grace should grow as you see how good he is. Again, as you begin trusting in that, we should want to sin less. We should want to grow and become less of a sinner, but we become a, more and more aware of our weakness and more and more aware of our need for God's grace. His grace should get bigger and bigger as we become more and more aware of how big God is and how weak we are. And that's the process of growth. My kids are teenagers, and, you know, we mark their growth, and they're getting bigger and bigger, and, you know, we put pencils on the wall there and and mark when they grow, and we'll write a date. And this is, I believe, the way that we chart that in our own life. As we grow, as Christians, Jesus should get bigger and bigger. Jesus should get bigger. God should get bigger. Jesus' grace to us should get bigger. And we become less and less. As John the Baptist talked about Jesus, he he should become more, I should become less. And that's what growth looks like in the Christian life. Not, look at me, look how big I am, look how strong I am, right? We we often think about that. We have this 
this desire to, to grow and to be more holy and to be more righteous, but that can often get twisted into, look at how awesome I am. I am so holy, and look at those bad sinners over there. They're terrible. And we see that caricature really come out in the Pharisees in the New Testament. When Jesus is confronting the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, we, we see that reality, that more and more they were confident of their own strength and how holy they were. And as they grew in their confidence and their own glory and how strong and how disciplined and how holy they were, they loved people less. And Jesus was always confronting them about that. You don't really love people. You love yourself. And so their chart of growth is, look at how big I am. Look at how much bigger I'm getting. Look at how much greater I am. Our chart of growth should be God getting bigger. He gets the glory. He gets the honor. There's more fear of God. There's more awe at who God is. There's more glory given to him. The last thing I want us to talk about is the idea of grace sharing. A lot of you, I believe, um, may be tracking with me. I need, I need grace to enter into God's kingdom, to start on this journey. I need grace to grow, um, but we also need grace to lead, to serve others. The only way that we can share what God has given to us is by God's grace, and so that's how we continue. It's by God's grace that we share. Again, you don't grow and you're this great person because of all the things you've you've done and now you're a leader and you can tell other people what to do no you even share god's grace by god's grace okay we share god's grace by god's grace and just two verses in proverbs i want us to look at that help us with that one talks about the superwoman in proverbs 31 and the other talks about the king in proverbs 20 both of them talk about this dynamic of grace being at work in their life in proverbs 20 28 It says, steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. So it says, you can't even be a king without God's grace. Grace makes someone a king. It it preserves the king. It it upholds his throne. So you're going to have uh, influence in people's lives. That's only by God's grace. It's not because you're so awesome. And and we get this so backwards. We think, hey, I've got this important position because I'm so awesome maybe I could sprinkle a little Jesus into it, right? No, it's it, Jesus gave you that. He, he gave you the gifts. He gave you the skills. He gave you the opportunity. He opened the doors and he closed doors. You're, you're where you are because he's appointed it for you. Acts 17 says, God appointed the times and the places for us to live, and he gives us work to do. So we need to get to work and be faithful by God's grace, sharing God's grace for his glory. And then Proverbs 31, 26 says, again, talking about the superwoman, the ideal, uh, valiant wife. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. That word kindness is, again, that, that word chesed, that word for grace, steadfast love. Grace just overflows out of her. So these two people with influence, the superwoman, the king, they're just, they exist because of God's grace. They overflow with God's grace. They share God's grace. And in the New Testament, to help us to remember this even more dramatically, we of course have the example of, of Jesus, who the king of the universe dies for us, gives himself up for us. We have the picture that Jesus gives us when he's uh, about to leave his disciples, where he washes his disciples' feet. We have the number one word that's used for leaders in the New Testament 
is a word for servant. That's the main word. In English, we use the word minister, deacon, servant. There's these other cognates or these other groups of words like uh, slave, right? And then there's this one word that appears a few times. It's, It's usually translated as assistant or helper, but it's a really cool word. It's hupo eritus, and it's this word that means under rower. Paul uses it about himself in 1 Corinthians 4, and you know there's all kinds of problems in Corinthians about them kind of being puffed up and having wrong ideas of leadership and thinking how great they are. And so Paul particularly uses this, this very humble word for servant, this under rower. It's this idea of, of a slave on a galley ship, right? Rowing underneath the boat. Nobody sees them. They're sweating down there. They're chained to the oars. There's tons of them, and they're the ones moving this great ship. And he says that's what it means to be a leader in God's community is to serve, to be a slave, to be an under rower. If you can't imagine that, I got a picture from Ben-Hur here. So there's uh, Ben-Hur, right? And when he's rowing on that, on that giant ship, Paul says, that's what leadership looks like. Paul says, this, this is who I am. As a great leader and apostle, I'm a servant. I'm a slave. I'm an under rower. And again, the Proverbs perspective is, is we only have that position by God's grace. God places us there. And I really want to challenge you guys this morning on this, on this instant because some of you feel like, well, I want to be at a place where I can have influence, but I'm stuck on some slave ship, right? I'm stuck in a cubicle. I've got this stupid job or I, God can't use me there. Or I'm in this, you know, I was, the army moved me to Colleen, Texas, right? I mean, wh- whatever it may be, you maybe think I'm, I'm stuck, right? I feel, I feel like a prisoner, and then again and again, the leaders in the New Testament say, that, yeah, that's what we are. We're slaves. We're servants. We're ministers. By God's grace, God's given us this place of influence, and he wants to use us there. God, by his grace, placed you where he placed you, and he will use you to bless others. Will you receive his grace? Will you trust in his grace? And it's not about you, and it's not about where you are, It's not about your position on the ship. God can use you to share his grace with other people. As we close, I just want to read Romans 3. And I'm sorry I kept us a little late today. But if you want to flip over there, I'm just going to read Romans 3. Because we started with with Proverbs 16.6 that talks about this concept of of atonement. Uh, We've got these, these Hebrew words, kofer and kippur. Uh, You may recognize Kippur. A lot of you on your calendars, right, you see this little holiday called Yom Kippur, and that's the Day of Atonement in Hebrew. And so there's this idea that there's this day where symbolically the sins of Israel were atoned for. Hebrews tells us that that atonement, that propitiation, that substitution takes place in Jesus. In Jesus. He's he's not just uh, the Lamb of God, he's the temple. He's not just the temple He's the priest. He's everything. He is our day of atonement. He is the one that takes care of our sin and our isolation from God. Romans 3 says it this way. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Again, it's not the redemption that I bring to the table because I'm smart. It's not the redemption that we bring to the table because... We have lots of friends. It's not the redemption of money. It's not the redemption of comfort. It's not the redemption of a great job. It's the redemption that's a gift through Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. 
says in 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation is a big word that means that God's wrath was satisfied, that a substitute was made, that that our sin has been taken care of through Jesus. That's that New Testament word for atonement. By his blood to be received by faith. We trust in it. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just and the justifier. No other religion gives us both. Only Christianity says that God is absolutely holy and just, and he justifies sinners like you and me. By grace, he restores us to fellowship with God. He sees us as righteous. If you trust in his grace for you, he delights in you as his very own child. He sees you as good and as beautiful as Jesus himself. And we're adopted into his family. I I pray that you would trust and rest in his grace this morning. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and we thank you that you showed us your grace through Jesus. Help us to rest in it, to trust in it. And God, I pray that we would be transformed. God, I pray that we would take the New Testament gamble and that by trusting in your grace, we wouldn't sin more but we would actually be transformed and we would love more and we would offer our lives for others. We pray this in Jesus' name.